Good evening. Again, welcome to the seventh large group of the semester for REF. We've been working our way through Exodus as a part of our series we've called Being Known and Living Free. And being known is an important theme in the scriptures, right? Not just knowing ourselves or knowing one another, but also uh, that God is to be known. That may be more important than anything else. That in tonight's passage, we're going to see that it's actually knowing God that determines the outcome of at least Pharaoh's life. And God, our creator, longs to have a relationship with his creation, to be known by us. And in fact, we can say that even scripture itself, right, the fact that God has spoken to his creation reveals that God longs to be known by us, that he has revealed himself to us. He's not left us simply to guess who he is. But even with that fact, even with the fact uh, that God wants us to know him, right? Even that Jesus himself is God, you know, incarnate, made flesh, the word, God's word made a human being. The overarching story of humanity is that we don't really want to know who God is. That the truth is humanity has, has, instead of worshiping God, has decided to worship a God it already has, which is ourselves, right? That we do what we want, buy what we want, have sex with who we want, talk how we want, work how we want, live how we want. God has given us a word for this in the Bible. He calls it sin. And as we uh, stated earlier in our confession time, the truth is that not one of us is in here who is not guilty of committing sin, who has not rebelled against our Creator. Tonight, as we look at these 10 plagues, and no, we're not going to read all 10 plagues. Uh, It's like three chapters long. I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, We are really going to see two things about sin. Really just two things about sin. We're going to see the significance of sin, a.k.a. what's so bad about it. And then we're going to see the swallowing of sin, what God does about it. So let's read about sin from Exodus 5, 1 through 2. We read that last week. We're picking back up. And then a little bit in Exodus 7 and 9. Exodus 5, 1 through 2, it says this, Afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers 
And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, uh, then there's you know, six plagues, uh, water turning into blood of the Nile, frogs, gnats, flies, Egyptian livestock uh, all die, and then the first one of them, and then uh, boils. Picking back up in Exodus 9, 13 through 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and and your people, so that you know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Let's pray. The Lord, uh, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts uh, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so let's just start our discussion of sin tonight by looking for a moment at the significance of sin. Uh, And we're going to do that uh, mostly by taking it as a whole, um, but go ahead and turn to 8 through 13, verses 8 through 13. Have that up for us for a second. Uh, I'm really going to make three little tiny points about how sin is significant. Uh, And it's these, that it decreates or like uncreates creation. It discloses the heart and destinates. Uh, destinate is just like an old English way of saying that it makes something fixed or rigid. So let's start the first way sin is significant and that it decreates. It's worth noting, you know, as God brings these disasters and we have the very first sign that, uh, that Moses and Aaron do here with the staff and the, the serpents, it's worth noting that not everything that bad, everything bad that ever happens is because someone is sinning. Right, I have this image in my head. Whenever I was a kid, 9-11 happened. And I remember the next day, a televangelist by the name of Jerry Falwell was on the TV. And he told everybody that the reason that uh, the World Trade Center was attacked was because of America's sin. That it was a judgment on America. And I always think about that when I think about these plagues. That you know, God brings judgment on a whole nation kind of thing. But it's worth reminding ourselves that, you know, to our shame, Christians uh, at the time forgot about the fact that this is a particular judgment against a particular king who was sinful against a particular God's particular people. God does not still have a literal chosen nation as he did with the Israelites at this time. Uh, No borders to cross. And if he did, Uh, I believe I could make a pretty good case that America would not be that chosen nation based on the fact that there are more Christians in the global south than there are even in the United States of America. So worth reminding ourselves that, you know, it's not always a one-to-one correlation. And also, what's more, these plagues are not really some, like, random one-off attack or tragedy that either has no real meaning or has perpetrators that can literally, like al-Qaeda, that can tell us the meaning of an attack. Unlike 9-11 or, you know, for instance, there were terrible tornadoes that ravaged my home state of Kentucky. I have uh, this earlier this year, I have a cousin who lost her home. 
the plagues that we see here in these chapters, right, they are certainly done in such a way that it's impossible to miss their purpose. Look at me at 8 through 13 here. The first sign that God does to and for Pharaoh. The reason I picked this passage to kind of stand in for all the other plagues is that it's a really good summary of what follows. Moses and Aaron are before, uh, are before Pharaoh, and God turns Aaron's staff into a serpent. And the magicians from Egypt, they do the same thing. But here's the catch. Aaron's staff eats the magician's staffs. In other words, uh, what it demonstrates is that creation, these animals, these serpents that, they've, that even they have made under their creator, they listen to God. They are subsumed by God, not Pharaoh. And to prove that, right, the plagues themselves are also a picture of creation itself unraveling before Pharaoh by God's hand. Think about it. Uh, They're a direct reversal on almost the whole creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Day 1 of creation, what happens? If you've ever read Genesis 1 and 2, uh, day 1 of creation, God creates light and darkness, light from darkness. Uh, In the ninth plague, God puts darkness over the whole land of Egypt. Day 2 of creation, water is gathered into one place as a life source for all of of, uh, Earth's creatures. The first plague, the Nile, the source of life for all the creatures in Egypt, gets turned into blood. Day three of creation, God creates vegetation and land. What happens on the eighth plague? Crops are destroyed by, uh, the seventh and eighth plague, crops are destroyed by hail and locusts. Everything that God has created, he is unraveling in front of Pharaoh. It goes on and on and on. I could do them for all the days of creation, but I won't. The consequence of Pharaoh's sin is that it breaks God's created order. Right? The consequence of Pharaoh's sin is that it breaks God's created order. And of course, this is what all sin does. Right? If you steal time from your work, whether that's you know, your boss or maybe even just schoolwork, if you scroll on TikTok for hours at a time, uh, which you know, I've never done, uh, obviously, uh, you break God's creational mandate to subdue the earth. Right? Murder, and when I say murder, I mean also hating your neighbor in your heart, as Jesus says in Matthew 5-7 through in the Sermon on the Mount, that even just hating your neighbor in your heart, it, crea- it, sorry, it violates God's created order for the value of human life. If you uh, have extramarital sex, God says that it violates his created order of a covenantal marriage that reflects the unity and the diversity of God himself as the Trinity. In other words, to boil it all down, sin decreates. It attacks the created order, but sin also discloses our hearts. It reveals where our allegiances are and who we really are. Look at me at verse 14 of chapter 9. Verse 14 of chapter 9. There's two words in here, you yourself, uh, that it's the best translation you can probably do in English to make it make sense, but those words in verse 14 actually can be translated literally uh, your heart in the Hebrew so that it reads for this time I will send all my plagues on your heart and on your servants and on your people Moses is saying this to or God is through Moses is saying this to Pharaoh God promises to send plagues on Pharaoh's heart now here's the thing that doesn't make a ton of sense in the English right you don't send plagues on someone's hearts so the translators do their best but what it misses is that the plagues are designed to hit Pharaoh's heart. 
right, to uncover it for what it really is. And look at God's reasoning there in verse 14. Why does he want to hit Pharaoh's heart? Why is he going to hit Pharaoh's heart with the plagues? It's ultimately so that everyone, that you is plural, everyone will know who the real God is. And it's not him. It's not Pharaoh. We looked at this last week in chapter 5, but it's important to reiterate, you know, from verse 2 of chapter 5, that Pharaoh claims he doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know God, doesn't acknowledge him. And as the effects of sin come crushing down on Pharaoh in the form of plagues, God here in verse 14, sorry, I'm flipping back and forth on you, Gavin. He's saying that uh, Pharaoh is going to learn who God is, even if it's the hard way. As the effects of sin come crushing down on Pharaoh in the form of plagues, right? Uh, his sin does the same thing our sin does, right? It comes crashing down on us. Take, uh, take the seemingly trivial example that we said earlier about TikTok, right? If you do TikTok too much, whatever, you scroll too much, right? Uh, at, at worst, maybe your boss yells at you. Uh, at best, or sorry, at, sorry, at best your boss just yells at you. At worst, you get fired after a long enough time, right? Or you do it enough with uh, a test coming up and you fail that test, right? There comes to, at some point, because of the way that God has created the world and you're decreating the order, there comes a point where it discloses where your heart really lies, what's controlling you, what has your allegiance. And it comes in the form of a judgment. There are consequences for that sin that reveal that you cannot escape the way that God has made his world. And even if you can somehow outrun the temporal limitations, right? If you could somehow avoid the things that Pharaoh is having to hit with these plagues, the truth is that one day God will right all wrongs as he judges sin. That, that everything, including your TikTok use, will be laid bare before him. Sin discloses what grips our hearts, right? So it uh, discloses and it dec- decreates. The last thing sin does is that it destinates, right? Remember I said destinate is just like an old English word for like making something fixed or rigid. Look at me at verses 3 through 4 of chapter 7. Look at me at verses 3 through 4. We talked about this a bit last week, but it says there that God promises to harden Pharaoh's heart. He destinates it. He makes it rigid. That uh, he says essentially that God will perform many wonders in Egypt, and the truth is that Pharaoh's just not going to listen to any of them. And that, in fact, is precisely what happens. God strengthens Pharaoh's resolve to rebel against the Lord as his heart is disclosed by a sin and creation all around him is unraveling. He continues to just rebel against what God is telling him. And yet, as we said last week, there's still a mystery here that we have to acknowledge, right? Between the fact that there's, you know, Pharaoh on the one hand, you know, uh, having his heart hardened and yet also Every time that God does one of these uh, acts, right, even in this little small time uh, where, you know, Moses and Aaron turn this staff into a serpent and eats the other ones, right, it's after the serpents are eaten and it's just the one staff left that Pharaoh hardens his heart. After every single plague, it's actually once God relents, the plague is over and no one's pressuring him anymore, that Pharaoh hardens his heart. In other words, Uh, When he has the opportunity to choose another way, that's actually when Pharaoh most digs in his heels. It gives the idea 
right? That as the narrative goes along, while it's true that God hardens his heart, it's also true that Pharaoh really, really wants to just not do what God has asked him to do. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says it like this, that God gives people over to their desires. He, God is fixing or God is destinating Pharaoh on what he really wants. He's giving him exactly what he wants. If you want sin bad enough for long enough, God is happy to let you have it, and it actually gets easier and easier to say no to God and yes to yourself. So much so that it comes as a form of judgment in itself. C.S. Lewis, uh, in The Great Divorce, he says it like this, there are really only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, no, thy will be done. Right? There are people who say, thy will be done to God, and those who say, who God says to them, thy will be done. This reminds me of going skiing one time whenever I was a kid. I don't think you guys have heard this story. Uh, I was really little. I was maybe like five. I was very, like five, six or whatever. Young enough that like they wouldn't like let me have the poles. You know what I mean? Because they're afraid I'm going like, to poke my eye out or something. My parents raised me to always put the lap bar down whenever you're on the lift, right? Don't fall out. Always put the lap bar down. Keep yourself like inside the thing. Never discussion. And of course, the right, like all the cool kids don't put the lap bar down. I don't know if y'all have ever skied. Like if you've ever been on like a ski lift, all the like teenagers and the 20 year olds or whatever, they don't put the lap bar down because they're like, I'm not going to fall out. I'm not an idiot, you know? And of course, like when your parents are like, well, you're going to put the bar down. You're like, does that make me an idiot? You know, does that make me immature? Like, and so the five-year-old me was like, man, this stinks. I want to put the bar down. Well, one day I went down the mountain with a family friend. And for whatever reason, she trusted me enough to not put the bar down, her and her husband, while we were going on the lift. I thought to myself, that's right. I'm a big boy. I don't need a bar, right? No lap bar for me. Now, the thing was, as I got on that lift, right, what happened was the operators at the bottom of the lift had made a snowman. And when I say a snowman, I mean this thing was the biggest, like bigger than the ceiling here for sure. Thing was a huge gargantuan snowman. A kid from Virginia, like I had not seen that much snow in like one place ever. You guys up here in Wisconsin would be like, I've seen bigger. But where I was, it was like, it was massive, right? And the scarf, the corncob pipe, button, the whole deal had like really dressed it up. And of course I was fascinated by this as like a five-year-old kid. So I watched it and I watched it. And I watched it as we went up the hill, and I watched it some more. And then it was the opposite way up. And that was weird because I was falling <laughs> off, of the, off of the chairlift, right? What really was happening to me is that uh, I looked and looked until my skis were up and my head was down into the snow. And this is truly what we are like with sin. We look back at what we want long enough and, and, and chase it and desire it, and God will let us go after it. And the truth is it has disastrous effects, right? It often has disastrous, and it always does. The significance of sin is that it decreates, it discloses the heart, and it destinates. Right? It gets us easier and easier to do what we really want, and we end up hurting people in the process. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have? If that's what sin does, and we've, and we've said this is where we all are, we're doomed, right? What, what hope do we have of a creation that's always in disarray from our hardened hearts. Well, uh, this brings us to our second point, last point, the swallowing up of sin. Look at me again at verse 12 of chapter 7. Look at me at verse 12 of chapter 7. 
We discussed this verse with decreation, but uh, there's not just a judgment in this verse for Pharaoh. There's also a hope in it. Right? That at the very beginning of the exodus from Egypt, the very first sign God does to Pharaoh, God is signaling to his people that he will deliver them from Pharaoh. In fact, the Hebrew word for the verb swallowed up in verse 12, it's the exact same word used later in Exodus 15, 12. Right after the Israelites go through the Red Sea, the Egyptians chase after them and God closes the sea up on them. Uh, Pharaoh sings a song to the Lord and says this, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them up. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks, right? That story of the, of the real exodus through the Red Sea. But for now, just suffice it to say that in this first sign and all the plagues that follow it, God is swallowing up the sin committed against his people. Right? He doesn't leave it unjudged, doesn't leave it uh, having the last word. The enemies of his son, the Israelites, they are his enemies as well. Right? Sin is God's enemy and he will lift it from his people. He will swallow up Pharaoh and his power and deliver his people from the oppression of sin and their enemy. Now the question becomes, right, how do we, if we're all sinners like Pharaoh, how do I get to be the Israelites in this story, right? Like, what do I have to do to get on that side of things, right? Well, here's what we know for sure. It's not by being good enough. Here's how you, here's how you get to be an Israelite. It's not by performance. It cannot be by trying harder and being better and being a good person. If you remember last week, right before this episode, the people are buddying up to Pharaoh. This Pharaoh, this guy, who I don't know Yahweh, I don't care about you guys, whatever, crushing them under the work. They're buddying up to him, trying to make him happy, idolizing him, worshiping him as a false god, hoping that he will give them his approval. Maybe their life won't be so bad. In fact, they turn on Moses and Aaron and tell us, tell them, why did you try and liberate us? It was better when we were enslaved. Right? It can't be because people are so, they're so holy and trust in God and things. It can't be because of the people themselves, right? Their works. It can't be that that's why God loves his people. Instead, might I offer to you that it's grace. That God loves his people because of his sheer grace. It's a gift. That's how we become part of God's people. We lay hold of that grace. We say that we need it. Whereas sin... Right? Whereas sin decreates, discloses the heart, and destinates, God's grace to us recreates, regenerates our heart, and predestinates ourselves. What do I mean by that? There's a lot of big words, I know. What I mean by this is, is that is this. Uh, that the plagues themselves, right, while they point to judgment over sin, they also point to Jesus. The plagues tell us about a Savior. The plagues are but a precursor to a time where God will, in fact, visit judgment on those who reject him and and those who mar his creation while simultaneously, graciously gathering his people into freedom. But that judgment doesn't come on you or me. It comes on the person of Jesus, and that is our liberation. Look at me at Romans 8, 22 through 24. Paul's going to actually talk about that exact idea in Romans 8, 22. The Apostle Paul, he says here, uh, I think it's up, yep. It says here that when Jesus died on the cross, he led his own exodus for everyone who believed in him. And it's a reversal of this plague story. If, we'll, if instead of hardening our hearts, we soften them, unlike Pharaoh. Right? Look at verse 22. The creation itself is going to be 
is groaning to be rebirthed. That, uh, and we see this in Jesus' miracles, right? He's healing blind men. He is uh, causing dead men to come alive. It's, that, it's not that Jesus is violating the created order, unlike the plagues, right? It's that he is restoring the created order. People who should be able to see can. People who should be able to walk can. Right? That's the beginning of the restoration of creation. That's the beginning of Jesus of God working backwards against our decreation. Look at verse 23. The first fruits of the Spirit is a heart that has been regenerated or made alive. The Spirit uh, right, makes not just our heart alive, but eventually redeems our whole bodies, says Paul. Right? The redemption of our bodies is coming. It starts with our heart and moves all the way through even our physical bodies, that even those will not ultimately end in death. Verse 24, we're saved by hoping in another, placing our faith in Jesus, where sin, right, decreates, discloses the heart, and destinates God's grace to us, and it recreates. It takes that creation and uh, makes it new. It regenerates our heart. It makes us alive. Even our very bodies won't ultimately die. And then lastly, right, it uh, predestinates. It puts us in the position, not of Pharaoh, where we're locked into not wanting the right things, but instead that we have our hope placed in Jesus. The work of Jesus is finished on our behalf, right? By grace through faith, we receive mercy and participate in the recreation of our world that is currently tainted with sin. Right, to put it another way, God invites us to hear the song he is singing over his creation. Have you guys, uh, I know y'all probably don't have Apple Plus, but you should get it. Do the free trial. I'm not going to do a Ted Lasso thing, but you should also watch Ted Lasso uh, for that, for the record. But uh, with Apple Plus, you can watch a movie called Coda that's up for Best Picture this year. And there's this scene in the movie Coda where, sorry if you were in my ethics seminar, you're getting a double dose of this. There's this scene in the, in the movie Coda where the daughter is, it's a child of a deaf adult. That's what Coda stands for. And uh, she's singing in this concert and her parents are in the audience and they can't hear what's going on, but they can like look around. And the, the, the movie's brilliant because right as she's singing the major concert, every time man, I hear that, I'm like, oh no, it's happening again. Uh, the um, right as she's singing in the major concert, you've been like led to believe this is going to be the climax of the movie. You're finally going to hear the big number of the movie, and instead it goes blank. You don't hear anything. And the dad is sitting there, and it's just a picture of him with his wife. They're holding hands, and they're like looking around, and people are weeping. Like all around them, people are crying. Like some people are laughing. Like people, you can just tell that everyone in the room is being moved and they cannot hear what their daughter is singing. So after the concert ends, right, they're going back home and everyone goes inside. They're like, tell her, like, good job, you know, even though they, they have no idea if she did a good job, the whole family. And, and they all go in and the dad goes, I think I'm actually going to stay out here and just be by myself for a while. And the daughter stays back behind with them and they're sitting outside on a truck bed and they're looking up at the stars. And the daughter, or the dad asked the daughter, like, what were you singing about? And she goes, well, I was singing about how, like, love, you know, conquers all, love is a good thing. And he goes, it seems like it was really moving. And she goes, like, it, it was a really good thing. I like the song. He goes, will you sing it for me so I can know what it's like? And she, like, starts to sing. And she takes his hands and she puts them 
on her throat as she sings so he can feel her vocal cords, right? What God invites us to do, unlike Pharaoh, right? What he's inviting us to do is to hear him sing, to hear the way that he sings through his creation, the way that he set it up, the beauty that's in it. And instead of us meandering around in our deafness, not really knowing the beauty of the song that he wants us to sing, we too get to participate with him. We get to hear the words that he is singing to us. And we get to display that beauty to others instead of decreating what he has so beautifully made, instead of our hearts pushing against his, instead of our, ourselves bringing judgment on ourselves and our own destinies, like our destinies. God invites us instead to hear his words, his song, his beauty. I, I hope that you'll take that uh, tonight instead.